Japan 3, USA 2. Top of the ninth inning. Two outs. Otani versus Trout. Are you kidding me with this? That is a script only God can write. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! The World Baseball Classic was spectacular. The ending with Shohei Otani pitching for Team Japan and his Angels teammate Mike Trout batting for Team USA, two of the most talented men ever to wear a baseball uniform. The count went to 3-2, and then Otani threw a nasty slider. Trout swung and missed. Game over. Japan wins the 2023 World Baseball Classic. Congratulations to Team Japan. So the WBC is over. But before this week is out, the regular season begins. I can't guarantee who will win the 2023 World Series. I can't guarantee or predict what will happen on the way. But what I can guarantee is that the story will be thoroughly enjoyable to watch unfold before our eyes. There will be storylines and storytellers throughout the season. God is the master of story, all story, as history is his story. This includes the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms, as well as the falling of a hair from your head. It most definitely includes what happens in our wonderful game of baseball. Our triune God has written a story, decreeing whatsoever comes to pass before the foundation of the world, And, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence. The Catechism continues by teaching what is meant by the providence of God. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things includes all things in the greatest game on earth. All things includes those who witness these stories those who are storytellers about these events, and those who, like my guest today, research and record these stories, doing so with those who have wonderfully told them. Kirk, I appreciate you joining me in the bullpen today. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about your book. The book is titled The Voices of Baseball, The Game's Greatest Broadcasters Reflect on America's Pastime. We're going to get into that, but before we do, I want to have those who listen to us learn a little bit about you. 
what you do, how you got into journalism, how you ended up writing this book, and you've written other books as well. Well, I've always I've always kind of written things. I mean, I used to write screenplays. I never had any produced or anything like that. So I always had a, a, a desire to write. And then I basically, after so much time in trying to get screenplays produced or optioned or anything like that, and then realizing that even when I did get them optioned, I'd be making just as much money as I was as a valet on the Las Vegas Strip. I decided that's not the thing to do anymore. And so I still wanted to write. And so, you know, a couple of years later down the road, I got to thinking about a book idea and I kind of pitched it. Instead of writing out a whole thing on it and then pitching it like I would with a screenplay, I just kind of pitched the idea before anything was even put on paper. And people liked the idea of doing a ballpark tour through baseball, through the voices and perspectives of the broadcasters. And so from there, it just really picked up and caught a lot of steam. And and over time, you know, the book has come out in a couple of different editions, the original edition, a paperback edition, and now it's being re-released in an updated edition a few years after the paperback came out. And uh, there's a lot more material. Uh, baseball is ever-changing, and there's always new things happening. There's always new great stories that are occurring every year, and you got to kind of keep up with it. And so in order to do that, in order to keep it fresh, I wanted to try to get some more fresh perspectives this time around. And so I interviewed a lot of the broadcasters that I didn't pick up on the first time around. And all these demons have been exercised in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned Vegas. If I understand correctly, you grew up in Vegas and you went to BYU and graduated from BYU. Is that correct? Yes, I graduated from BYU in marketing. So, I mean, the journalism never really was a professional pedigree or, or anything that I had. It was just always something I wanted to do. I just always would say, hey, look, I've written this, blah, blah, blah. But my marketing I've always used. <laughs> I've always kind of marketed myself. And so now, you know, now I am, you know, I work for a, a newspaper, a weekly newspaper in a small town in Arizona. And so I'm, you know, gathering journalism's experience as I, as I go along and learning the fine arts of writing in different styles. And the way you would write a newspaper article is a lot different than you would write a book on baseball broadcasting. Absolutely. Now I have one question and it may tie in. We're going to move into the book. This question may tie into the book, but I read that you and your family, your wife and your daughter with you spent over a year traveling across the United States in an RV. First of all, what was that like? And second of all, was that, at least in part, part of the process of writing this book? It was not a part of the process of writing the book because it was in between editions of the book. And the publisher hadn't come back to me with an invitation to write an updated edition of the book yet. Um, we lived in Vegas during a time of COVID, and I'm not going to try to get political about this because this isn't a discussion about political, but... Living in Las Vegas during COVID, when COVID broke out, things were very, very different. Um, you basically were being told essential versus non-essential businesses. A lot of things were happening. It was a lot of uncertainty in the town. It just didn't seem like the town that I had spent so many years of my life living in and growing up in. And it just did not seem like a welcoming town to be in anymore. We were already kind of one foot out the door even before COVID hit because we were like, 
I think Vegas is kind of wearing on us because just Vegas is if 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 you look at Vegas today and Vegas thirty years ago, it is completely different. And I don't know if anybody outside of Vegas knows that, but I'm sure anybody who's visited it enough times in their life would realize that. And so we sold our house, we bought an RV. We thought, you know what, let's go see this country and let's go see the areas where people are not freaking out. <laughs> and so we started along the south. You know, Arizona is a great state for being, you know, in a like kind of carefree and more relaxed state and a ton of nature, uh, a ton of um, beauty and natural landmarks and all kinds of stuff. And then we basically went across the south through uh, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, Alabama, down into Florida, and then came back up. Um, little by little, we would stay places, you know, for a month here or a month there. And then we came back west. And it wasn't intended to be a ballpark tour, but it just by default turned out to be. Because in 2021, they finally started letting people go to baseball games again. So I was able to go to seven new ballparks that I hadn't already been to. And I had already been to 13. So I was, you know, checking off the ballpark list as we went. Went to Houston, uh, went to Miami. Uh, I had already been to Tampa Bay's ballpark, so I didn't need to check that one off the list. But also did Atlanta, um, Kansas City, St. Louis, Milwaukee, and Chicago, Wrigley, uh, Chicago, to be specific. So uh, it was it was great in that aspect, and plus, you know, just the nature and just seeing this country and kind of appreciating it and being out. In, doing walks and doing all kinds of nature stuff. It was great. And it was a great experience for, for our daughter. You know, what What 10-year-old is going to have that experience where they're out just seeing the country? You know, this is the kind of experience for people who are retired. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about a 10-year-old who's like kind of catching all the nature and the different animals that Florida has to offer that New Mexico doesn't. <laughs> sure. That sounds like a great <laughs> trip on multiple levels. All right, so let's get into the book. As you mentioned, it has been released. It is being released again, and there are updates. Now, one of the updates, I guess maybe we should wait a little bit further into the interview, is the final chapter. But as I read through this book, there are 30 chapters. There's the introduction. There's 32 chapters, but there's 30 chapters in which you are going from ballpark to ballpark, and with that, the broadcasters of that particular team, and in some cases, broadcasters that were with one team for a period of time and another team. But this whole thing kind of weaves in broadcasters and their perspective and their storytelling with ballparks and and how they were built and where they were built and why they were built and the game and the players and the history of the game. I think it's just fabulous how you work that all out. And if I got it right, you went from chapter one to chapter 30 based on chronology of the ballpark with, a, I guess, an asterisk for Texas because of the newer aspect. Uh, and then you finished chapter 31 with nine ballparks that have closed. And then chapter 32 we'll get to here in a little bit. So tell me about the interaction you had with the various broadcasters. And as you just mentioned, some of these ballparks you've not yet been to and how you put this all together, and and why the update, other than, of course, a lot of things happen in a four- or five- or six-year period of time, but why else did you think the update was important? Well, I mean, the last edition of the book, the paperback, I was able to, just under the wire, get Pat Hughes of the Cubs to discuss being the first Cubs broadcaster in history to call World Series championship. 
because there wasn't even broadcasting the last time the Cubs had won. So, of course, that's something that's huge. But now this time around, I got the other side of the 2016 World Series and longtime Cleveland Indians slash Guardians broadcaster Tom Hamilton, who was the home broadcaster in that Game 7. And even as the losing broadcaster, he recognized that that was the most electric moment of that ballpark's history, that game-tying two-run home run by Rajai Davis in the bottom of the eighth in Game 7. And his perspective also, you know, his perspective is, you know, I've been to the World Series before. I've called the World Series before in 97. It was down in Miami, and nobody cares about baseball down in Miami. Mm. You know, again, he's basically just saying that it's like, they don't even realize they're in a World Series. But when you have a team like Chicago, especially the Cubs, and a team like Cleveland, those are both baseball towns for sure. And and a fan base that will be loyal and and through and through. And so the the book had to change when I realized that I couldn't just have these broadcasters talking about their favorite home moments mm. because, you know, Pat Hughes is a visiting broadcaster in game seven in 2016. So his most memorable home game broadcast is not even if, if, if that is his, I can't imagine it not being his most imaginable broadcast, his most uh, memorable broadcast, but that, that broadcast was on the road and here he is calling this world series. So you have to kind of lift that requisite and have it be a universal perspective of, of whichever booth you've been in, more of the memorable things. And so the the, chat, the book had to kind of evolve because a lot of these things were happening on the road. Um, San Diego Padres' first no-hitter in team history happened in Texas, <laughs> and the broadcaster wasn't even there. <laughs> he was in the visiting team booth calling the game in San Diego at Petco Park in the visiting team booth had a makeshift table set up with him and Tony Gwynn Jr. This We're talking about Jesse Agler, the, the lead radio voice of the Padres. And he's calling this game for his radio audience, looking at it from a monitor, mm. you know. And so, but he is able to just really nail the whole experience because Joe Musgrove is a San Diego native. And we're talking a kid, we're talking a guy who as a kid grew up getting autographs from the San Diego Padres. And he was even young enough that when the park opened in 2004, he was still a young fan going to these games and getting these autographs. And now he's the first Padre ever to throw a no-hitter, the longest drought of no-hit, you know, futility in baseball history, uh, even longer than the Mets' futility that ended in 2012. So opening it up to basically being home or away – sharing your experiences, it just really helped to inflate the chapters a lot more content-wise. So as you, both in the first edition and, and then the updated portion of it, as you engaged in these conversations, as you engaged in research, and by the way, I'm just going to say this, you have a bibliography at the end about all of the teams and the ballparks um, that people can look at, I think is outstanding. The other thing I think is that if a person was going to do what you did and travel the country and go to ballparks, they ought to read, if they're going to go to five ballparks, they ought to read the five chapters on those particular ballparks because you give a lot of information, a lot of background. I knew about Camden Yards to a degree, but what you fill in in your book, it was just enjoyable to read. But in all of this time of talking to these broadcasters, of doing the research, what were 
some of the most significant things that you learned or that you were glad you learned that you hadn't known before you started this project? I mean, honestly, if you read this book and if you're a betting person, you can probably take cleanup at the sports books. <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm just saying that from, from the knowledge that some of these broadcasters impart, um, you, you think about uh, somebody like uh, a, a solid Boston Red Sox pitcher, you know, playing in that cold weather and playing to his own advantage in Fenway Park. And then you see that same pitcher in mid-July playing in Cleveland and the ball just rocketing and their, their ERA inflating like a balloon. Those are some of the things that I was able to kind of get from um, – in, in, in researching and, and talking to these broadcasters, for example, I had no idea thinking about it just from, as a lay person, I had no idea that the second highest elevation in all of baseball is right here in Arizona, mm. uh, in Phoenix. Um, you know, that's actually even a higher altitude, uh, than, than Atlanta. So we got obviously Coors Field in Colorado. So you know that the altitude there is more than twice that it is here in Arizona, but, a lot of these other ballparks, they're at sea level, you know. I can only imagine what it would be like playing ball, uh, baseball and below sea level <laughs> in New Orleans <laughs> yeah. and just uh, in, in, a humid, in, a, in a humid environment and realizing, you know, when you're at a game on a, on a summer's night in the Midwest and you're at a game in a summer's night in Los Angeles or in Anaheim, you would tend to think, hey, Los Angeles, Anaheim, California, wonderful weather, great, right? No. A night game in those two stadiums is you're wearing a hoodie or a jacket because you've got the ocean breeze blowing off, uh, blowing in, and, and you got that cool breeze and you got that cool night air. Whereas when you're east of the Mississippi or even right around there, you got that humidity at 70 or 80% and you're just sweating through your clothes. And you're just miserable. And <laughs> so those factors really affect the flow of the game. They really affect the numbers. Uh, you're going to see a lot more high-scoring games. Uh, you're going to see your aces numbers dip in some of those long months, especially in August when they're getting to the dog days and they're just tired from the f- being in the fifth month of the season and pretty much the eighth month, more or less, seventh month of having played baseball when you can, when you count spring training. So, I mean, you just take all those factors and you can kind of say, he's not really that crummy of a pitcher. He's just in some crummy circumstances. Sure. Now from your perspective, and I'm I'm not sure if you've thought through this or not, but I'm going to ask you to think through it now if you haven't and and think on your feet, what would you say would be the, the ballpark that is most advantageous for the home team? For the home team, yes. I mean, honestly, I think I think Houston. A lot of times, Houston is one of those ballparks where they breed, uh, they breed their team for that ballpark. Um, but that's just one off the bat. But after having done the book, I realized that a ballpark like Tropicana Field in Tampa or Rogers Center in, Ta- in Toronto are the clear definition of home field advantage. Teams and their managers cannot wait to get out of there. Sometimes they'll basically set it up scheduling-wise where they'll play those two teams back-to-back. The American League East teams would prefer to play those two teams back-to-back 
it's kind of like uh, take the bogey or whatever you call it. Call it, take the mulligan in golf, basically, and that's and that's how they would do it because they just cannot wait to get out of there, and they don't want to get their players hurt. So they're you know their best players on the third game of those series, regardless of where they are. A lot of times, standings wise, a lot of times they'll have their best players sit on the bench because if they've made it through the first two games without getting injured, they're not going to they're not going to try to cheat fate or test fate and, and have something happen. Players like Mike Trout or some of these players who have become more veterans and now they're in, in their late twenties and early thirties, the, the managers seeing the price tag on those players are not going to mess with that. And so Toronto and Tampa Bay to me would be the most advantageous home field wise with that regard, because the, the schedulers just look at those, those dates on the team schedule and they just growl and groan because they just do not want to go there. Mm. All right. A little bit more of a personal question here of the ballparks that you have been to. And I guess by, by what you said earlier, it would be 20 of the currently existing ones, which is your favorite ballpark? Oracle park in San Francisco easily. Uh, it's right on the, it's right on the water. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll sit in the upper deck and, and you can just watch um, regattas. <laughs> you can watch sailboats just come in to and hang out there on the bay, and and you can watch baseball. And it's a gorgeous stadium to boot. It's uh, beautifully built. They built it in that classic old style that is becoming more and more popular thanks to Camden Yards. And so when you have that kind of imagery and and they're still able to take in a game, it's just probably one of the best things you can ask for now weather that's a different thing (laughs) depending on what time of year you are but i was able to go to oracle park on a beautiful sunny august day my birthday my 39th birthday and uh take in the game and and it was the culmination of every possible thing you could possibly like about going to a baseball game and and luckily there was no wind and luckily i was able to get out of there without having to uh, pay to go over that bridge again. You have to pay to go into San Francisco, but you don't have to pay to get out. So it's kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now I'm going to go to chapter 31. And some of these ballparks you may have been to, some of them you're not old enough to be to or have been to, but you wrote about old Yankee stadium, old Kaminsky, Tiger stadium, Ebbets field, the polo grounds, the Astrodome, Riverfront, Olympic Stadium, and Cleveland Municipal Stadium. First of all, have you been to any of those stadiums when they were still in use? Uh, I've been to old Yankee Stadium. I've driven past the Astrodome, um, and I think that might be it. But, the, but yeah, I have been to old Yankee Stadium uh, a year into my marriage. My wife and I went there, and that was the final year of Yankee Stadium in 2008. So it was one of those things where – they announced that it was going to be their last year. I looked at my wife and I said, this is the last year at Yankee Stadium. She says, well, we better go. And we went. And we did the whole experience, you know, the tour. And and I, I, I haven't been to the new Yankee Stadium, but all my friends who have been to both say they miss the old one. So right now my memories stay with the old Yankee Stadium, and I don't want to sour them with the new one. But I, eventually you got to go. I, I, from what I hear about the new Yankee stadium, it's a five-star hotel built around a ballpark. So, um, so it's definitely an experience I want to go to, but I think a lot of these ballparks like Tiger stadium, Comiskey and old Yankee stadium, uh, they have their, 
their history. They have their, their perks. They have all the things they have, uh, you know, in old Comiskey, people used to watch the games through the chicken wire and they'd be, you know, they, there would be just all kinds of unique experiences that they don't have in ballparks now because of the facades and because of all the money they put into constructing these things. And you don't have those little, uh, nuances like you used to you don't have those little kids that sit there and you know kind of like the beginning of <laughs> angels in the outfit you got your two kids that are like looking from a from a tree and then you know high telling it out of there through some kind of like little sign and a, and a hole a fence with a hole in it so they can get out and get to get the safety without the security guard so <laughs> that really is how some of these old ballparks were and they're not like that anymore so talking to these broadcasters about it, you realize that they all had their little identity in that way, and people liked it that way. You know, looking at it from uh, an architectural standpoint or somebody who is sitting there counting beans and trying to figure out where they can squeeze out the, the next dollar, they don't appreciate those kinds of things. They're looking to see, okay, well, this, you know, this, this food stand is – done what for us let's get it out of here <laughs> you know something like that sure so of those nine ballparks chapter 31 that that you wrote about if you could bring one back and maybe you've already answered this indirectly but if you could bring any one of those nine back and be used right now which of the nine would it be i think it would be tiger stadium i've learned that you know yankee stadium is yankee stadium has had was able to have its fair share of success, obviously. 26 championships while the team was in that ballpark. They've only had one championship since, you know, in the new ballpark. But, you know, they've had their fair share of of success. But, you know, that's something different. Now, when you see, like, a team like the Tigers, now, of course, the Tigers haven't had 26 championships, but they had a few championships. Mm -hmm. But they also had one of the greatest players who ever played, who didn't win a championship, who made that ballpark what it is. And, you know, he's one of the ghosts in the ballpark, and that's Ty Cobb. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book, or one of the broadcasters talk about in the book, is that the ghosts are still there. So if you could bring back a ballpark where you know somebody like Ty Cobb and all those Yankee players played in old Tiger Stadium too, so let's not pretend like they never were there and their ghosts aren't there. Their ghosts are there laughing at the ghosts of the home team players you know, who didn't win there, you know, like you got, you got probably people like Babe Ruth laughing at Ty Cobb. Like how many did you win here? Oh, none. I won however many <laughs> in the stadium. So I think if I were to have one ballpark back, it would probably be Tiger stadium. Well, that, that plus it had that beautiful aesthetic to it. Yes. It had that aesthetic to the old ballparks had that whole round, you know, the, the upper, upper grandstand feel, you know, the, the seats that were blocked by pillars that were holding up the grandstand. People couldn't really see the game itself. And that seat itself had that kind of personality. And there's stories like that in the book too. So, and, and that's what I'm saying. You, you, you think about people spending money for ballpark tickets today and you think about whatever money you had to sit there and scrum up and go to a game and you and to sit in a seat where you can't even see the game because of pillars right in front of you. Some guy who designed the stadium thought, "Oh, this will be a nice little joke. He won't see it, but there's a seat right there. We gotta have this number." <laughs> but, but that's the identity of it. Yeah. Well, that was that was an answer I appreciated because until I got to college, the only major league ballpark I ever went to a game in was Tiger Stadium. I grew up on the west side of Michigan. 
So I usually get over there, you know, once a year, once every couple of years. And then I was kind of spoiled. The second major league ballpark I ever got a chance to go to was Wrigley Field. So uh, that was kind of nice. Now you brought up something about Ty Cobb, and I noticed something in the book. And so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. You talked about Ty Cobb. You said it just now, and you said in the book, arguably the best player ever to play the game. But then in another place, you said Willie Mays is arguably the best player to play the game. If you had a set on one player, and maybe it's neither one of those two, but if you had to pick one player and say, I believe this is the best baseball player ever to play the game, who would it be? It would be Willie Mays, hands down, because I look at it from the five-tool perspective. Uh, the greatest hitter ever was obviously Ted Williams. Ty Cobb might have been the best offensive player that ever played the game. That's arguable as well. But when we're talking about five tools, you're talking Willie Mays. And I'm in the middle of reading a book on Willie Mays, and that's how they refer to him. They don't say he's the greatest player ever. Because you can't say who the greatest player is, you have to put you have to put something in front, when or you have to put something on the back end of greatest, like I just did with greatest hitter, greatest pure hitter, Ted Williams. You know, but if you say greatest all round player and you think of the field, the base running, the hitting, hitting for power, you know, the speed, everything that comes with the the five tools, it's it's going to be Willie Mays, in my personal opinion. Ken Griffey Jr., if he wouldn't have been injured so much throughout his career, I would say that Ken Griffey Jr. may have made a run at Willie Mays for greatest all-around player ever. But unfortunately, he just got injured too many times. So I I think that would be my personal opinion, would be Willie Mays. I can't argue with you on that one. Uh, The very first guest I ever had in the bullpen was Dusty Baker. I asked him, you know, he's been in Major League Baseball since the late 60s, who are the three greatest players he's ever seen? He said Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Barry Bonds. And I think, you know, regardless of where you're coming from, if you're going to say top three or top five, Willie Mays has to be there. Maybe some people aren't going to say number one, but he's got to be in the top three or top five of all time. I I would, yeah, I I would say, I would argue about Hank Aaron in that, in that, uh, in that group as well. Like Dusty Baker's on the right spot with that, bringing Hank Aaron into it because Hank Aaron was another five tool player. I just felt like Willie Mays excelled a little bit more at some of the things, um, especially the speed. Yeah. All right, so let's get to Chapter 32. The chapter itself, and the other chapters, you've updated things, but Chapter 32 is a brand new chapter. And when you wrote the book the first time, Chapter 32 is dedicated to a man who was still around. And we lost him uh, not too long ago. I guess it's been about a year now. But chapter 32 is a chapter dedicated to Vin Scully. And in your book, you talk to 50 announcers. You've interviewed 50 announcers, 11 of, of them Hall of Fame announcers. One of those 11 would be Vin Scully. You got a chance to interview him. Then you wrote the final chapter of the book as a dedication to him. And you wrote to introduce the, the chapter, and you wrote to close the chapter And then in between, the bulk of the chapter is other broadcasters talking about Vin Scully. So let us now talk about Vin Scully. Give me your thoughts about him. Give me your thoughts about what you learned as it regards Vin Scully and talking to all of these other broadcasters. I mean, just to talk to him for 30 minutes, anything that all these other 35 broadcasters were talking about in the chapter, my experience talking with the man for 30 minutes none of this comes as a surprise any of the stories they tell because of of his wonderful 
way of, of living and his graciousness. I mean, he, he basically, I answer the phone and he says, hello, and I already know who it is. But then he says, my name's Vin Scully, and I broadcast baseball for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I mean, he's calling a guy who has been trying to get a hold of him to write, to interview him for his book on baseball broadcasting. And he has the, <laughs> you know, basically the assuming nature of this guy might not have heard of me, so I better let him know what I do. <laughs> you know? And that's him in a nutshell, you know, and and he never made anybody feel bad for wanting to come up to him and talk to him. And everybody, after time, he, the, you know, the guy was a walking, talking legend in the game. And then he still broadcast for another 37 years even after that, you know. So uh, at this point, you know, you have broadcasters who are saying, oh, I just I finally get my chance to go talk to Vin. We better, we, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a second to – remember somebody who just passed away in the last week or two is Dave Wills of the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, lead radio broadcaster, somebody I interviewed for the book. His, his Vin Scully story basically centers around him and his broadcasting partner, Andy Freed, just, or who, you know, Andy had already met Vin and talked with him on, on a, on a separate occasion, but Dave had, and this was their last, you know, they're, they're in Tampa Bay. They don't play the, the Dodgers as often. And they're like, you know, Dave's sitting there like, when's when's this opportunity going to be here or something like? Or we better get to the park early. We'll beat the we'll beat the crowd. You know, that's their mentality. It's like we got to beat the traffic, and by traffic, the people that are going to be beelining it to Vin Scully's broadcast booth. And that, and that is a is one of many examples of just how much Vin meant to the game and how much he meant to these other broadcasters. Just to be in the presence of him met so much of these guys. And for a lot of these guys, he was their friend, you know. Ryan Lefevre of the Kansas City Royals grew up in the same area as Vin and would see him at the grocery store, and Ryan's dad worked with the Dodgers. So even Ryan, kind of like, what am I going to say to him when I see him for the first time? And he had his first opportunity to see him as a grown-up, and Vin's like, well, Ryan, look at you all grown up, you know. And it's like he made it easy for a person to have that approach to him. He made it easy for them to get closer. You know, you, you, you know, you're, I'm from Arizona, so you hear the term hugging a cactus. Well, <laughs> if there's the antithesis of hugging a cactus, it's Vin Scully because you don't feel like you can't just walk up to him and give him a hug because he never made you feel that way. And these broadcasters all appreciated it. They recognized it, and they loved him for it. And they were just, you know, they knew that once – then it passed away. You know, it it's like it left a huge void in their hearts, a lot of them, because even though he retired five or six years before, they still felt he's still here. He's still, I can still call him. I can still, you know, Charlie Steiner, who basically became a broadcaster because of Vin Scully, would still have his meetings and his meetups with Vin and still love the crap out of him, you know, and still honor and look forward to any of those meetings and any chances he got to, to talk with him. And he broadcast alongside him for years. And I think that's really what Vin meant to anybody who ever met him, talked to him, uh, shook his hand, or even learned from him. Yeah, you know, there's debate, and I, I'm assuming there's a debate even on this issue, but I think far less. You know, there's debate who's the best ball player ever. 
when you ask about the best base, baseball broadcaster or just broadcaster generally, it may not be unanimous, but Vin Scully is going to be listed on most everybody's list as number one. And then people that know him are going to say, and as great as he was as a broadcaster generally, as a baseball broadcaster in particular, 67 years with the Dodgers, he was a better human being. And and that's that's why you write a chapter for a tribute for the man, not only because of how good he was at his craft, as important as that is, but that he was just a good man and that he really he he made other people better by getting to know him and being around him. I mean, I put, I submitted the manuscript for the book to the publisher on August 1st and Vin passed away on August 2nd. Mm. So that chapter is as fresh as it gets because that chapter was after the manuscript submission. I asked the editor the following day, I need to do something about this. This you can please edit the other chapters and let me get a chance to really express what this guy means to the broadcasting community. And the, the editor said, sure, you have two weeks, you know? And I said, I I will not need two weeks, but, and I was emailing immediately and I was getting answers and, and email response emails from people like Marv Albert that afternoon with a page worth of memories and a, of, of, of Vin Scully tidbits. And this is my experience with Vin Scully. And to hear somebody like Marv Albert uh, talk with him, talk about him with the esteem and with the, you know, the reverence that he did, that just goes to show right there. This is a broadcaster who is the czar of basketball broadcasting in Marv Albert discussing the guy who, pretty much may not just be the greatest baseball broadcaster ever, but the greatest broadcaster period. And I think that speaks volumes about an invitation like that sent out to broadcasters, the immediate response that speaks volumes to what this guy meant to him. And I, and I, I pitched this book to people saying, this is probably the first Vin Scully tribute to print because it just, it just fell on when the, you know, when the publisher was getting ready to send things to the printing press and do the editing and all that, this kind of stuff takes a while. This takes a while for them to print it for, after editing it and copy editing it and doing the proofs and everything that like that, these things take time. So for that to have happened, basically the process starting the day after the man passes away, I dare say this is probably the first book to print post you know, posthumously that there is on Vin Scully. That's an outstanding story. I want to respect your time, Kirk, so we'll wrap this up. But, and, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here or get you ahead of yourself, but in that chapter, chapter 32, you wrote, it would take a book to list all the memorable calls. And my question is, might you be the man to write such a book? <laughs> um, it- you know, I don't know if I'd be the one to do it because there's historians there that that will tell you every single thing about it. Um, and th- there will pe- there'll be people there who remember where they were, where they were sitting, you know, where they were driving. And I don't have – what I have is the input that everybody gives me. I don't have those being on the – you know, listening on my – 
transistor radio or whatever it was. Do you remember where you were? I was driving my RV over the the mountains in Utah uh, when Charlie Steiner called the Dodgers championship. And I made it a point to be tuned into that because I knew what that moment would mean to Charlie Steiner. Uh, you know, 65 years basically from the moment he caught the broadcasting bug as a little six or seven year old to calling the Dodgers first championship in 32 years. And those are the kinds of things that you can find yourself very fortunate to be a part of and, and be in the right place at the right time. So I would, if, if it were a matter of me being as a journalist, gathering up all those calls and everything like that, sure, I could write that book. But I, I feel like these there's more historian-oriented people that would be, <laughs> that would have a little bit more expansive of, of, a, of a memory in their history that might be better suited for it. But I probably would answer the call if given. <laughs> well, you've written this book, and I've read this book, and I cannot recommend this book enough. For anybody who loves the game of baseball, broadcasters, ballparks, the whole thing. So tell us about how people can get the book, how people could follow you if you have a social media presence or anything like that. Just some general information that, that people can can learn about you and how to get this book. Well, if you want to do the easy route, you can get on Amazon and order it or pre-order it. But if you want to do the route, they'll save you a few bucks. In fact, it's $11 cheaper if you do this. You go through the publisher, which is Roman, so that's R-O-W-M-A-N.com, and you use coupon code R-L-F-A-N-D-F-30, and it gives you 30% off the book, which makes it about $11 cheaper than buying on Amazon. And it's available. It's available. If you order right now, it'll ship in the next few days, and it'll get to you. So. That would be my recommendation. You can always follow me on Twitter at it's uh, at the voices of MLB with MLB in uh, all caps. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page called the voices of baseball and I'll be posting on, on their updates to say that, you know, the books available and use this coupon code. So anyway, you want to get it. Social media is probably the best, but like I said, uh, get on Amazon or, or go through the, uh, website www.romanwithaw.com. Excellent. So the book is The Voices of Baseball, The Game's Greatest Broadcasters Reflect on America's Pastime. Kirk McKnight is the author. He has been my guest. Kirk, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. I'm very grateful to Kirk for giving us his time for this interview. I thoroughly enjoyed reading his book and the interview that we just had. I hope you enjoyed the interview as well and that you get his book. I think you'll appreciate reading it as I did. If you are a regular listener to In the Bullpen, I'm going to guess that you appreciated hearing his story about his family spending more than a year traveling the United States in an RV. And likely, your appreciation increased when you considered the very reason for that trip. Now, that was at the beginning of the interview, and he said something else at the beginning that I hope you didn't miss. He talked about the fact that there are always new great stories occurring every year in baseball. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And there will be new great stories in baseball during the 2023 season. New and great stories for us, each and every one of them. 
But each and every new and great story for us will be a part of the old, old story, the one written by Almighty God before the beginning of time. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for listening.